Today's episode of The Rewatchables is brought to you by State Farm. Around here, we love talking about movies that we watch, rewatch, and watch again because they're just that good. It's the thoughtful details, the little things other movies don't have that keep us coming back. Here's the deal. When it comes to insurance, we can't get enough of State Farm. They have all the details we appreciate. They make insurance easy. You can monitor your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim through their app, which was awarded Best Insurance Mobile App 2019. Thanks to their network of 19,000 agents, you'll have someone local to walk you through options and help you choose a policy that meets your individual needs versus cookie cutter coverage. Best of all, they give it to you straight. No gimmicks, no games, just guidance you can count on. It's a no-brainer. Go out and get the insurance you deserve. Get State Farm like a good neighbor. State Farm is there. Get a quote or find an agent at statefarm.com. We're also brought to you by theringer.com, where we are still producing content, including Sports, pop culture pieces, uh, reaction to football free agency, real-time stuff about uh, the coronavirus and the pandemic that's hitting everything right now. We're doing podcasts too on the Ringer Podcast Network, Ringer NBA, Ringer NFL. I think JJ Reddick has one this week. David Chang has one this week. The Watch, Big Picture, whole bunch of your favorites. They're all in action. And the rewatchables, we are moving to, I think, twice a week at least for the next few weeks as we try to figure it out. I think we can only do two people at a time. It's going to be too hard to try three with everybody in remote locations, but be ready for that. Coming up, I know what I have to do now. I have to keep breathing because tomorrow the sun will rise. Who knows what the tide will bring. Castaway is next. I'll be right back. If everything you ever were suddenly disappeared, Who would you become? Academy Award-winning director Robert Zemeckis and Tom Hanks. Look what I have created! Reunite for the first time since Forrest Gump. I would rather take my chance out there in the ocean than to stay here and die. Tom Hanks. Cast Away. Rated PG-13. All right, my name is Bill Simmons. I'm hosting this one by myself. This was a running joke with us at The Ringer for the last couple of years. Castaway was always on the schedule. It's one of the most rewatchable movies of the last 20 years. I love this movie. And at some point, I started joking that whenever we did Castaway, I was going to get rid of the co-host and do it by myself because Tom Hanks is by himself for about 60% of this movie. Well, you know what's going on in the world right now. The social distancing thing has moved to another level over the past seven, eight days. All of us are are trying to stay away from each other. And if you're not, you're a dumbass. But this seemed like the perfect time to do Castaway by myself. Why not? All right, so why do I love this movie? It came out in 2000. It hits its 20-year anniversary in December. I think Tom Hanks, who has won two Oscars and been nominated for three more, and you would say, well, what was his greatest performance? You'd probably gravitate toward one of the two Oscar-winning performances, which were uh, Forrest Gump and Philadelphia. I actually think his two best performances were big, which I think came out in 1988, but he got nominated for an Oscar he didn't win. But that is a movie that is timeless. I'm sure we'll do it on on the rewatchables at some point in our lives. But his performance in a movie that probably shouldn't have worked, and even if it did work, shouldn't have worked as well as it did, I'm not sure who else could have played Josh Baskin and done it with 
all of the layers that he brought to that movie um, as a 30-year-old trying to pretend he's 13. He's just great. I think I left the theater. I was always a big Tom Hanks guy dating back to when I was living with my dad in Boston after my parents got divorced. Bosom Buddies came on. We watched every sitcom back then. We only had a couple channels. There was no internet, uh, barely any video games, not a lot to do. Bosom Buddies came on. It was about Tom Hanks and Peter Scolari. They were, um, for some reason, struggling for rent money to pay to get the right apartment. So they decided that to save money, they were going to dress as women and live in an all-female apartment complex or condo complex, whatever it was. I always thought there was a flaw in this because you're trying to save money to to for rent and everything, but you're buying all this makeup and all of these women's clothes and all this stuff. It was a flaw, but he was great in that show. And I think he was also on Family Ties as, as I think, Ned the Alcoholic Uncle. He had a huge part with that back during the very special episode era. And I think all of us had a lot of Tom Hanks stock. And then Splash happens. He becomes a star. He starts going on Letterman. And for the next basically five years, Tom Hanks' stock is rising. He starts hosting SNL. He becomes one of the best SNL co-hosts they ever had. Big happens. Uh, Bonfire of the Vanities was supposed to be a signature thing for him. Huge movie. Bruce Willis is in it. I think Melanie Griffith was the lead female. Uh, it was a huge book at the time. And it was supposed to be, this is it. This is this is going to be the end. And it ended up bombing. And, you know, I always joked on this pod and in other places about through about 1990, Michael Keaton versus Tom Hanks was a real battle. And they were neck and neck. They were basically bird and magic for whatever sphere they were in. And then starting in 92, Hanks just rips off the best nine-year run of popular movies by any actor ever. And here it is. A League of Their Own, Sleepless in Seattle, Philadelphia, Forrest Gump, Apollo 13, Toy Story, Saving Private Ryan, You've Got Mail, Toy Story 2, The Green Mile, and Castaway. All in nine years, and I didn't even mention that thing you do, which he directed, and he's in as well. But um, two Oscars during that stretch, two Oscar nominations, and after Castaway comes out in two thousand, it's unassailable. He is one of the great actors we've had. You could make a case he might be the greatest, just in terms of the amount of movies his people have reached, the amount of good movies that he's been in, the amount of popular movies that he's been in. Um, and then individual success, it's way up there. And I think, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis, I think, has gotten the reputation, rightly so, as being the best actor of the last 25, 30 years. There's some other ones, Philip Seymour Hoffman, et cetera. I think it's really hard, not just in acting, but in any form, to be really good or even great at something while also reaching about as many people as possible. You know, I think Daniel Daniel Day Lewis, what he's doing, where every three four years he's making a movie, he throws himself into it, and he's incredible. Most recently with Phantom Thread, to put out one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven plus that thing you do twelve movies in nine years, and all of them are good. A couple of them are iconic. Is just about impossible. The batting average is not realistic at all. 
but he did it. And I think with Castaway, which I think is one of his two great performances from a degree of difficulty, he's the only person who probably could pull it off standpoint. That kind of won him the title. Not that he didn't have it already. Again, unbelievable run. But at this point, this is like Jordan on the 98 Bulls, where if you go back and you look at what happened with Jordan that last year when he won his sixth title, Scottie Pippen's got a bad back. He can barely move by by the time we get to the last couple of games of the finals. Dennis Rodman's whole life is falling apart. Uh, all the role players on that team, none of them really went on to anything. They were all ninth men. They had the wear and tear of three straight seasons. I think he played some crazy number of games. Like I think he played like 228 of 228 games in three years, something like that, some crazy number. And by the end of it, it's just him and he's willing them to win. And you look at Castaway, the amount of time Tom Hanks is by himself in this movie acting with coconuts and ice skates, <laughs> multiple scenes with a volleyball for over an hour. He is by himself carrying this thing with charisma, with acting. There's real nuance to what he's doing. I think it's one of the best performances uh, of the last 25 years. Now, he, he didn't win the Oscar that year, but it's defensible because Russell Crowe won the, act, won the uh, best actor that year for Gladiator which was one of the great action movie performances of the last 25 years. And the moment that I think Russell Crowe became an A plus lister. So who should have won between Crowe and Gladiator and Hanks and Castaway? I'm not sure. I thought Gladiator over the last 20 years would have endured a lot more than it did as a rewatchable. I think it is for some people, but Castaway for whatever reason, and we're going to go through all of them right now in this podcast has endured as an all-time rewatchable. And here's how I know this. It's on all the time. It's on all the time. You go to AMC, you go to TNT, HBO, Cinemax. Guess what? There's Castaway. And I was trying to think like, what? why do I love this movie so much? Out of the movies that have come out in the last 20 years, it is a movie I have rewatched probably the most other than maybe almost famous and maybe one or two others. It's definitely in the top three or the top four. What is it about it? That's so rewatchable. And I think the answer is when he is by himself, there's no music. And we'll get into that later. The decision they made to just not have music in for a huge chunk of this movie because they wanted to really bang home the isolation and the sounds of the ocean and just how lonely the dude was. It's weirdly relaxing to have on. And you wouldn't think a movie that has an emotionally scarring plane crash that is one of the most brutal plane crashes ever filled, ever filmed. It might be even number one, but it has that. It has this guy trying to get off the island and 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 then he finally gets back after four years and his fiance has married his dentist. You wouldn't think this movie would be as rewatchable as it was. I remember I saw this movie there was a great theater in Massachusetts. I lived in Charlestown in 2000 and there was a theater that we had in Revere that opened up. It was this huge complex. And I used to go see a lot of movies there, um, late nineties, basically until I moved to LA in 2002. And I went with my future wife and we saw it. I really liked it. The ending left me a little off. 
I didn't understand why they ended the movie that way. I thought he was going to end up with Helen Hunt. I didn't really get the whole four corners thing where he's standing in the middle of the road after he sees Bettina and she drives off and then he's kind of deciding which direction he wants to go. And he turns and he turns and then finally starts looking off in the distance and just seeing that for the first time, trying to digest it. I remember leaving the theater going, what the fuck? That, that ending sucked. <laughs> what did you do? I don't, I, I don't understand it. And then I, this is one of those movies that when you rewatch it, you pick up 10 million things. And one of the things you pick up at the ending is the way they film it and the way he's standing, he turns, he turns, and then he turns back to the one street where, where you can't see his car, which is obviously the street that Bettina goes down. And he realizes he has to go back and find her. And then the more you rewatch this movie and the more emails I got about it, because I've really been talking about this movie in columns and stuff since 2007, 2008, and then in podcasts as well. And what you realize is the whole movie is leading toward him going to Bettina because the start of the movie, she mails a package. You can see the wide shot of a ranch and it's her and her husband with the two wings. And that's why the movie starts that way because it all comes back to the end where you see the ranch again, but the husband's name is missing. And this Tom Hanks package, which has basically lured him back to this one spot they were meant to be together. And that's the point of the movie. I did not pick that up the first time, uh, first time I watched it. This was one of the most inventive productions we've had with a movie in a long time. Tom Hanks, Robert Zemeckis, who directed it, and William Broyles Jr., who wrote it, they made three decisions. They decided there would be no voiceover or music once Chuck arrived on the island. They decided they would not cut back to civilization at any point when he was on the island, which is a really crucial choice for a variety of reasons. One, because we're stuck on the island with Tom Hanks. We don't know anything other than being on this island. So the weirder he gets you know, the more normal it seems because we haven't seen any normal people for over an hour. Um, and it also makes it so much more powerful when we see Helen Hunt four years later and she gets the phone call. Um, and then the third thing they decided was that Chuck's transformation over over the four years that he's on the island would have to be like truly convincing. And now we would have to probably, I you might see shortcuts, you might see CGI, who the hell knows. Back then they were like, no, no, we're doing this correctly. So they filmed the movie from 1998 to 2000. And when, when they did pre-production, Hanks gained 50 pounds for the purpose of making the transformation more dramatic when he actually lost all the weight. They filmed a big chunk of the movie, basically everything through the plane crash. Then they halted production for a year so he could lose his weight and, and grow the hair and grow the beard, which apparently was his hair and his beard. There was some basketball game or something where they showed Tom Hanks and he basically had that full castaway look, but he had, they hadn't restarted filming the movie yet. And he looked like a maniac. And it was like, yeah, Tom Hanks, he's looking this way for a movie. It's like, what? Did this guy lose his mind? What's happening? But it was a genius move. And they had, they had him lose all the weight, grow the hair, grow the beard, all that stuff. Then they did another four-month halt that preceded the filming of uh, when he comes back for the last 25 minutes of the movie, basically. So the other thing that's nuts, Zemeckis, because Hanks has to basically take a year off from production. So Zemeckis hires the film crew and makes another film 
He makes What Lies Beneath, which the one with Harrison Ford and Michelle Pfeiffer, which I get, I got to be honest, I kind of like. I love all Michelle Pfeiffer movies. She's kind of my movie soulmate. I defend all Pfeiffer movies, but that movie's pretty good. So anyway, they used the same crew for that, then went back to uh, to do Castaway. The conceit of it was Hanks, who I guess was really involved in the creative process and the production process, all this stuff, and and had the kind of power at this point that he could have basically decided anything, including I'm going to film a movie for the next two years and you guys are going to pay for it. Hanks said the big thing for him was, quote, Chuck learns no great lessons. I didn't want to show a man conquering his environment but rather the effect the environment has on him. I wanted to deal with subject matter that was largely verboten in mainstream movies, taking the concept of a guy trapped against the elements with no external forces, no pirates, no bad guys, and tell it in a way that challenged the normal cinematic narrative structure, end quote. And then Broyles says, with the thank you at the end, quote, the idea of acceptance parentheses of his fate, that there's no rationale for some of the things that happened to us. But finally, there is gratitude. So this is an unusual Hollywood movie. Tom Hanks loses. He gets off the island thinking he's going to get his fiance back, and he doesn't. Because in real life, your fiance gets married to the fucking dentist and has a kid. And even though she's telling you you're the love of of her life, it's not going to work out because she already started a new life and you can't be in it. I thought that part, the the fact that they swerved at the end uh, and he didn't end up with Helen Hunt was another great decision in this movie. This movie's really great. And if I'm going to say what four movies would tell people a hundred years from now what a great actor Tom Hanks was, I would pick Castaway. I would pick Big. I would pick Philadelphia. And I would pick Saving Private Ryan. Those would be the four because those are four different kind of roles. But in each role, he's kind of maintaining the inner, his inner Hanks. Still, you know, Denzel's like this too. When they're when they're acting, you always feel like you're attached to the human being who's the actor even though they can do all these different roles. And that like Denzel does training day and wins the Oscar for it. And he should have, he's amazing. We did that movie on the rewatchables too, but it still feels like Denzel. It doesn't feel like when Daniel day Lewis is the guy in phantom thread and he's a completely different person. It still feels like Denzel playing evil Denzel. And with Tom Hanks, it's like saving private Ryan. He's like military leader, Tom Hanks. And, you know, in Castaway, he's stuck on an island, Tom Hanks. And in Philadelphia, he's dying of a deadly virus, Tom Hanks. But it always feels like Tom Hanks. And I think that's the everyman quality that he had is the biggest reason why he's been able to endure. The other reason is, um, other than that, he's an awesome actor. Just incredible taste in scripts. You, you look at these these movies he made for 12 years. I did a hottest take for Spotify complaining about Tom Hanks's movie choices the last 20 years because the batting average just wasn't as high. The reality is it would have been impossible for anyone's batting average to be this high when you ripped off what you ripped off in those nine years plus Splash and Big and a couple of the other ones. So anyway, uh, this movie had a $90 million budget. It made $429 million. 
and counting because God knows how much money they're making from cable and everything else. It got an 88% on Rotten Tomatoes. And I would say of, of all the movies in the last 20 years, this is probably the one that's on the most. It would be this, it'd be almost famous. I think Day After Tomorrow is going to have a run. Down the, That movie only came out a few years ago, but I think we'll be seeing a lot of that one. I think Anchorman is kind of timeless. There's been some comedies, but Castaway, I think, is the most surprising one to me that has endured as a rewatchable. I certainly didn't feel that way when I left the theater. I remember really enjoying it. I remember being disappointed by the ending. I never expected it would, it would be a movie that I would buy on Blu-ray and uh, would watch a million times. And more importantly, for the purposes of this podcast, just get sucked in because there's different points, especially after the first 20 minutes where it's like, uh-oh, Chuck's on the FedEx plane. All right, I'm just going to watch this one part. Uh, here come the packages. Ah, I'm going to watch Chuck open these. Uh-oh, Chuck's trying to learn to make fire. I think I'm going to watch this part. And so on and so on. And you just get sucked in. And then when, especially when he comes back near the end, it's like, oh, he's going to Helen Hunt's house. I got to watch this part. And it's like, ah, it's almost at the end. I might as well, might as well just keep this going till the, till the end. It is the definition of a rewatchable. Uh, before we get to the categories, I wanted to read you this email I got from Daryl in Wildwood, Missouri, a few years ago. I thought he summed up the movie really well. This is a theory. But it's a pretty good theory. Here's what Daryl wrote. Chuck's entire arc, the entire movie, was how Chuck met his destiny and the love of his life. Patina, the artist seen in the opening scene and then at the too obvious crossroad in the last scene. The movie opens with a Federal Express truck pulling into a ranch in the middle of nowhere, Texas, through an arch with Dick and Patina and the two encircled angel wings over the top. The truck is there to pick up a package that we watched delivered in Moscow to her husband called Cowboy by the FedEx delivery man. Bettina and the cowboy are obviously married, but in a failing relationship since we also see her husband and a Russian woman in a state of undress. On the nose, Elvis tunes play at critical story moments throughout the film. During the scene in the barn with Bettina and the FedEx driver, we first hear Heartbreak Hotel. I get so lonely, baby. I get so lonely, I could die. The music segues into All Shook Up, a story about a person who is admitting to him herself that she's in love unexpectedly. Then we find Chuck on the verge of getting engaged to Kelly. And the only reason he doesn't is that he gets on that plane, but they aren't right for each other. Chuck gets on the plane to the Elvis tuna blue Christmas quote. I'll have a blue Christmas without you foreshadowing his Christmas alone, but also on the nose in the deep blue ocean. Interesting. I don't know if I agree with that part. After the crash, the one package that Chuck doesn't open is the one with the encircled angel wings. He obviously had a connection to, with it as he painted the box's symbol on his raft sail. And with Wilson, was only one of two non-personal items from the flight that he took off the island. In the scene in the rain between Kelly and Chuck, Kelly calls him, quote, the love of her life. Chuck says he loves her too, but does not proclaim her as the love of his life. You'd expect that, wouldn't you? Skip to the last scene. Chuck's taking the package back to its sender again with the Elvis return to sender, a song that's broadly about a guy trying to use the mail to get back the girl he loves. Chuck drives through the arch, except this time Dick has been removed, leaving a large space with Bettina not being there. Chuck leaves the package with a note. The note is revelatory quote, this package saved my life. Not Kelly, the package from Bettina. Finally, Chuck pulls over at the crossroads to decide where to go. Bettina pulls up. Chuck, clueless as to who she is, 
And the first thing she says is, you look lost. Remember in the scene with his widowed friend after Chuck's final goodbye to Kelly, he uses the word lost two separate times when referring to losing Kelly first on the island. Chuck knew he'd lost Kelly and decided to kill himself because he was never going to get off the island. And then he'd lost her again back in Memphis. And then this email was great. It's still going. The look on Chuck's face, a brilliant, subtle piece of acting by Hanks, by Hanks indicates that he's beginning to understand that Bettina is his destiny and that his entire castaway ordeal was to put him in Texas in the middle of America, as far away from an ocean as he could be, following the trail that led him to the woman he was destined to love, a woman who had been married and unavailable when he took that fateful trip, which also prevented him from ending with Kelly and being unavailable for Bettina. That's a great email. I think I agree with that entire premise. I think that's what the movie is about. And this is why it's a definition of a rewatchable. I did not pick up all that the first time. Did not pick up all that the 10th, 15th times. I don't think I really made all of those connections until uh, until I got that email. Mostly because when you rewatch this movie, you kind of end up skipping the first 15 minutes. Or you come in later. You come in when he's about to go on the plane. And it's pretty cool how they pulled this thing off. I actually think this movie is greater than we thought it was. So let's, uh, let's do the categories. We're going to take a quick break. Let's take a break to talk about Postmates. When you need red wine at 4 p.m., sushi at 9 p.m., and breakfast burrito at 8 a.m., and ibuprofen at 10 a.m., Postmates. Postmates is your personal food delivery, grocery delivery, whatever kind of delivery service all year round. Need it more than ever these days. Anything you're craving, Postmates can deliver. They're the largest on-demand network in the U.S. and offer delivery from all the restaurants, groceries, and convenience stores and traditional retailers you could possibly want or need. 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, Postmates will bring you what you need within the hour. No more trips to the store. You don't even have to know where the store is. Postmates will deliver anything to you. Download the app for iOS or Android for free. Browse local restaurants and businesses and track your delivery in real time. For a limited time, Postmates is giving our listeners $100 a free delivery credit for your first seven days. To start your free deliveries, download the app and use code REWATCHABLES. That's code REWATCHABLES for $100 of free delivery credit for your first seven days when you download the Postmates app. Anything you need, anytime you need it, Postmate it, download Postmates and save with code REWATCHABLES. Okay, the categories. I'm kind of enjoying hosting this by myself. I might get rid of all the other hosts. This just might be a solo pod from now on. Most rewatchable scene. Let's start with the plane crash. A couple thoughts. This is an incredible six minutes. I would say this is one of the best action scenes of the past 25 years. It is impossible not to watch this movie, watch this particular section scene without your heart pounding, without putting yourself in Chuck's place, what you would do. There's a couple of kind of indelible moments in it, especially when he's looking through the front window of the plane and all of a sudden the water's there and then it cuts to Hanks and he has that look on his face like, holy fucking shit, we're about to go in the water. And then he screams, brace for impact. The crash itself. I have I have one nitpick with the crash, which we'll get to later. Um, tough beat, by the way, for the 
for the co-pilot who got the head injury and he's just rolling around going, ah, ah, with blood. <laughs> they they might have might have toned that one back. Um I'm not sure Chuck survives this plane crash. Uh it certainly worked out great for him. Where uh he goes backwards with the water, but hits a couple things, but doesn't get knocked unconscious and is able to pull it, pull himself out in time. But then he gets out, the thing gets stuck. He finally gets out of there, that goes up, gets to the top of the water, gets out, he's fine. But then all of a sudden the propeller's there. It looks like he's gonna get chewed up by the propeller. And then the way they shoot it at the tail end of the scene where they bring the camera up and it's just looking down on Hanks from further and further away. He's in this crazy ocean. That scene is uh, really, really great. And uh, it's hard when that movie, when this movie is on TV and you're flipping channels and that scene is on not to go, oh, I, uh, I think I'll watch this part. So that's the first one. The second one, when Chuck gets mad and he tries to escape uh, the day after he sees the boat, I also like this scene when he's taking a piss in the ocean and sees the boat from far away, but just like uh, they did a nice job of just representing how bored he had to be day to day in this kind of like how we are right now. But uh, when Chuck tries to escape and he's in the yellow raft and he thinks he's going to make it. And then that one huge wave is coming and he gets that look of terror in his face, ends up getting thrown down to the bottom of the ocean, gets cut, all that stuff. Also a great action scene. Uh, the third one is when Chuck makes fire for most rewatchable scenes. This is apex eggs. He's really bringing it in every level. I'm not sure how many actors, like could Brad Pitt have done this? I don't know. Could Leo have pulled off this scene? Not sure. To do it, I, I guess the closest we have is Damon in The Martian, but I don't think Damon in The Martian has a scene as good as Hanks with the fire, trying to get it going, realizing, you know, oh, we need air. I need air. The air caught to it. And and starting to get more and more excited and then finally gets it the way he celebrates. Then he makes the fire and he does the whole thing. Look what I have created. I have made fire. I have made fire. Great, Hanks. Next one is, for most rewatchable, is... uh, Chuck getting off the island. Here we go, Wilson. You don't have to worry about anything. I'll do all the paddling. This is just a great five, six minutes. Building the raft, doing it, realizing the sail, putting it up at the perfect time, getting over that one killer wave that he couldn't get by. And then he's finally there. And there's a great touch in this that I got to admit, I didn't fully notice until I started researching the movie. That's when they start playing music for the first time. We don't hear music. We don't hear the score for an hour. And that score is, you know, so, so sad and so poignant, but we don't hear it until he gets over that killer wave. And then uh, he looks back and he starts to get choked up that he actually made it. And he's saying goodbye to the island. And that's when the music comes in. I'm putting this as a mini most rewatchable scene just after Chuck finally gets rescued. Um, I don't like the scene as much when he loses Wilson. Cause that scene stresses me out. That's like a, it's a most rewatchable, but it's, it's kind of like a most makes me uncomfortable rewatchable. But uh, 
when he gives up, he puts puts the oars in the ocean and basically commits suicide, even though he doesn't. He knows he's going to die. And then the boat comes, he raises his hand, and then the phone rings. And that's the first time we see Helen Hunt in four years. She's looking like classic housewife mom and gets the call. Hello? Oh, hey, how are you? Okay. Like, obviously the guy on the other end's like, hey, I hope you're sitting down. I have something incredible to tell you. And then she just passes out. Hello? Oh, how are you? Okay. That's really good. I like that whole part. All right, next one. And we're going to break this down in detail. Hanks goes to see Helen Hunt. This is my next most rewatchable scene. So she doesn't come to the little party for him at the airport terminal. Whether the husband kind of sabotaged that, it's up for debate. I'm willing to have the debate. If Chris or Sean was here or both of them, I, I feel like we would be talking about this for 20 minutes. But she basically won't see him because she's too upset. But then he shows up at her house in a cab because he has to see her. And she's like surprisingly not surprised. Not that emotional, was just kind of lying in bed, wondering if maybe he would show up and goes down. Here's the car. They start catching up. They talk a little about uh, the Titans making the Super Bowl. We went to the Super Bowl last year. And I missed that. Oh, you would have died. It was so exciting. They almost won by one yard, one lousy yard right at the end. She starts making him coffee. Then they get sidetracked. She brings him into the living room, shows him the maps. And then he's like, here, you should take your car. All right, I'll see you. Thanks. Kiss, hug. He starts driving off. It's a rainstorm. She runs out in the driveway. Somehow he hears her in a rainstorm. He's like 75 yards away from the house. We'll let that one slide. Uh, she runs out, screams, Chuck, Chuck. Chuck! Huge hug, start making out in the rain, go back in the car. They realize they've made a mistake that they that it can't work. And he drives her back to, to the garage. She gets out. She walks into her house completely drenched. And Hanks drives off. And this is a really, really good, well-acted scene. Here, I'm gonna do a nitpick now because it's super important. And I've certainly talked about this a couple of times in comms and pods, but we're gonna do it again. The husband never woke up during any of this. Really? Mr. Big, Chris Noth, just lying in bed. Chuck Nolan's back, the love of his wife's life. She's got in the living room for some reason, all these maps trying to figure out where he crashed that she hasn't cleaned up yet that are just still in the dining room. It's not a huge house. It's like, hey, can we eat at the dining room tonight, honey? We can't. That's where I keep all the maps where I'm looking for the lost love of my life. We, we can't use that room. Then they find Chuck. Does she get rid of the maps? No. Keeps the maps. Still, still trying to figure out like what island he was in. That's weird. So Hanks is obviously on Mr. Big's radar here. Then she's going to go see him. Whether he cockblocked it or not, I don't know. But um, she's so upset she can't see him. She's sobbing. We see the shot of them. Um, she's inconsolable. Then she gets out 
there, there's commotion. In the, there's a car that leaves his garage. There's screaming, Chuck, Chuck. Uh, there's a car backing up. There's a car going back into the garage. This guy's fucking asleep. What is he on Xanax? Terrible, terrible job by this guy. I mean, seriously, I wrote this a while ago and I'm going to read it again. Imagine your wife was engaged to someone who was stranded on a desert island for four years, dramatically escaped and became a worldwide celebrity. And she's an emotional wreck and your dining room is covered in maps and sketches. Aren't you waking up every time she gets out of bed for a glass of water? Aren't you jumping at the sound of every car door slam? Wouldn't the noise of your wife screaming Chuck outside your house in the wee hours send you outside wielding a shotgun? So I wrote about this, and then a reader, Kyle on College Station, Texas, here was his theory. This was back in 2009, so this was right after uh, the Rogers Fire thing in Green Bay. He theorized, what makes you think the husband is sleeping? He needs to let his wife resolve the situation. So he's up there wide awake listening to every word. It's not like he can forbid her to see him. And then he writes, I think Hunt is the Packers. Hanks is Brett Favre and the husband is Aaron Rodgers just waiting to see how it works out. Well, I think that's a great analogy. We didn't realize in 2009, Favre was never coming back to Green Bay and they would win the Super Bowl with Rodgers. So the dentist, maybe he played this perfectly. So either A, he's a complete dumbass shithead that he didn't wake up or B, really calculating, thinking to himself, there's no way these guys can make it. We just had a kid. She's not ditching the kid, bringing back, hey, here's your new stepfather who's on an island for four years. His best friend is a volleyball. Not doing that. So he plays, he long games it. Maybe that's what he did. Maybe he played the long game. He's like, yeah, I'm going to let them work this out. Maybe they'll have one makeout kiss in the rain. But ultimately, Chuck's leaving. Chuck knows that this ship has sailed. And he was right. So either A, complete moron, or B, genius. Like, played it like Belichick. Who knows? All right, the last... uh Rewatchable scene is the ending, which, as I, I mentioned, um, confused me the first time. You need to watch it a few times, and then it becomes brilliant. Now, Hank said, um, trying to figure out how to end this movie, he said, quote, we went down so many bad tributaries of figuring out what should happen to Chuck. He said, it was really called Chuck of the Jungle. And we did all these scenarios of what happens. Somebody comes back to the world. He's loaded with self-pity. He's loaded with Rip Van Winkle, kind of like Jeepers Creepers. Look how small the computers are, all that kind of stuff. We thought, look, he'd probably be turned into some media celebrity. And what's he going to do? Be sitting in this secret square with Susan Anton right next to him. They did every variation. Then they decided the way to, to do this was to downplay it. He goes back to get Helen Hunt. Doesn't work out decides he has to deliver this one last package to the love of his life. And that was the way it worked. And I'm sure they fixed the beginning of the movie to try to have everything tied together. But I think that was the right move. I really like the ending now. In fact, I think the last six minutes, that's among the, uh, the strongest of the movie. All right. So what was the most rewatchable scene? <sighs> I think it's the Helen Hunt scene when he goes back to see her because not only is it a great like six, seven minutes and, the, and it moves a couple different ways, but I love getting annoyed by the husband. And I think for me personally, it's the most rewatchable. I think other would say the plane crash, other would say his, him getting off the island. All right. Next category, what's aged the best? I'm going to go here first. This movie 
as a widescreen HD 2020 home theater experience, you think about um, seeing in the theater, one of the best things about it was just on the giant movie screen, the blue of the ocean and, and just how clear everything is and, and remote and the sounds and all that stuff. It was a great movie theater movie. And then as our TVs started to get better and we went widescreen in the last 10 years, it really helped this movie. And that's, you could say that for a bunch of different movies, but I think this one is way up there in movies that this really helped. Um, the whole thing where Chuck is having a huge dental problem, right? As his fiance, unbeknownst to him, is falling for his former dentist thousands of miles away. And you have that scene when he's in the cave, when he starts talking about, oh my God, what I wouldn't do to have a dentist in this cave. And meanwhile, his wife is, is uh, plowing into a dentist. And then he actually has to perform his own dental surgery on it. Uh, all of like the little weird ties and, and parallels there was pretty cool. Chuck taking his tooth out with an ice skate. Um, also pretty cool. Not sure how that wouldn't have led to a massive infection that probably would have killed him, but we'll let it go. Maybe he gargled a lot of salt water. Uh, Chuck examining the food and the lighter at the welcome home party after everybody's left and he sees the crab leg and he, the sushi. And then he picks up the lighter. He starts turning on and off and, you know, it's hitting you over the head a little bit with the symbolism of how hard it was for him to get this stuff when he was on the island. But at the same time, it was effective. Another what's aged the best when he says to Helen Hunt after they get back together. So let me get one thing straight here. We have a pro football team now, but they're in Nashville. It's a great line. It's also set up in a way that it seems like he's going to say, so let me get one thing straight here. You fucking married my dentist and had a kid with him. I was barely gone. Now he does the pro football team, Nashville, and uh, and that was a smart move. And then another would say it's the best: the volleyball in the front seat at the end of the movie, which I'm not sure I noticed for 15 years. And I don't know whether he was returning the volleyball or whether he was having a psychotic experience and was going to just start hanging out with the volleyball again. It was unclear. I assume maybe he was returning the volleyball, but we really don't know. It might have just been his new best friend. Uh, but I will say what's aged the best is the the movie as a widescreen HD experience is great. Uh, what's aged the worst? Next category. The Titans coming off a Super Bowl season. That's aged the worst because that hasn't happened since. Another what's aged the worst. Uh, the Gilligan's, Islands, Gilligan's Island references. Don't take much more of those coconuts. Coconut milk's a natural laxative. Things Gilligan never told us. Well, which made a lot more sense in 1999. Uh, I don't know if anyone under 25, you're you're probably barely getting them at this point. And then uh, Chuck's whole suicide plan was a little weird, and it's interesting. In the theatrical movie, and then I think the first couple years of this movie, we actually have the scene in there, which I think you can find online where he does basically the preseason move of the suicide with the, with the big tree trunk where he hangs the tree trunk to see what would happen. And the, and the, the tree trunk snaps and that scares him off from doing it. At some point over the last 15 years, they took that out of the movie 
So when you watch it on HBO, TNT, even on the on the Blu-ray, that scene isn't in the actual movie anymore. I'm not sure why. Maybe they maybe they thought it was in poor taste or who knows. I thought they should have kept it in. Here's the thing though. If Chuck really wanted to kill himself, why do you have to climb up to the top of this mountain and hang yourself? You have the the skate blades. You have the ice skates. You just slit your wrists. Is this in poor taste? Yeah, I don't care. I'm by myself. Uh, it just seems like, why go for the the crazy, ambitious suicide option when you could just pretty easily take care of it? I mean, and he says later, I could, I didn't even have control about how I was going to kill myself. It's like, well, you did have ice skates. Could have figured something out there. That whole thing was weird. Next category, casting what ifs. I couldn't find any. I tried. Could not find any. Next category, best that guy, a.k.a. the Joey Pants Award. We're going to give this to Nick Searcy. That's the guy who played Chuck's buddy. And he's kind of that guy. I, I got to say, I didn't know his name until I looked it up when I was preparing for this podcast. Nick Searcy. So he's he's that guy. He's Chuck's buddy whose wife died in Castaway. The Vincent Hanna They Knew Award for... Most over the top acting. You got to go with Hanks just getting furious at the volleyball. Well, regardless, I would rather take my chance out there on the ocean than to stay here and die on this shithole island, spending the rest of my life talking to a goddamn volleyball. He dials it up like about 3% too much, maybe even 13% in that one. So I'm going to give the They Knew to that. The Dion Waiters Award. Best heat check in the movie. There's really two candidates. Unless you want to go with the co-pilot who gets the head injury. Ah, ah! Um, the candidates are Wilson the volleyball or Bettina, the lady who comes in at the end. I'm going to go with Bettina because she's barely in the movie, maybe for 90 seconds total. And by the end of her interaction with Hanks, I'm all in. I'm like, he should be with her. And if you head back that direction, you'll find a whole lot of nothing all the way to Canada. Good luck, cowboy. Thank you. The redhead, she calls him cowboy. You look lost. Whole thing, the flirting, tremendous. I love the truck. Great dog, great taste in dogs. I'm going, Bettina. It's a good job by her. Recasting couch. You could have gone with Julianne Moore in the Bettina spot here, but I actually like the actress who played with Bettina, and I like the fact that I didn't really have a history with her, so I'm not going to go with her. Man, I hate to do this with, to Nick Searcy right after we just gave him the Joey Pants Award, but if I'm doing recasting couch, I think I want somebody who's on Hanks's level, especially for the scene near the end of the movie when he does the three-and-a-half-minute monologue after he realizes it's not going to happen with Helen Hunt after he goes to see her and he's with his buddy and he talks about um, how he had control over nothing on the island, not even how he killed himself. But what he learned is you got to breathe in and out. And he does that whole thing. And actually, I'm going to give you the quote where he says, I know what I have to do now. I have to keep breathing because tomorrow the sun will rise. Who knows what the tide will bring? I think I want more firepower in that scene with Hanks. And I was thinking Billy Bob Thornton from recasting this. Billy Bob Thornton, he's pretty hot at that point. He'd sling blade had been a couple years earlier. 
was still a big deal to have him in a movie. I think he would have added something to all the Chuck scenes. And uh, I'm not sure why they didn't go with more firepower. No, all due respect to Nick Searcy, by the way. Okay, half-ass internet research. Tom Hanks says that he had the original idea for this movie. Quote, I was reading an article about FedEx and I realized that 747 is filled with packages fly across the Pacific three times a day. And I just thought, what happens if that goes down? There you go. Tom Hanks, not only the best nine year stretch of any actor of all time, but also came up with the idea for this movie that made over $450 million. Castaway was filmed on Monoriki. I hope I said that right, which is one of the Mamanaku Islands in Fiji. I probably had two mispronunciations there. It's in a subgroup of the Mamanuku Archipelago, which is sighted off the coast of Vita Levu, Fiji's largest island. I just mangled nine words there. The island became a tourist attraction following the film's release. So potentially you could have an AMC rewatchables vacation where you go to Zawatneo, where the Shawshank thing was filmed, and then just fly right from there to the Castaway Island in the Fiji, in Fiji. And then, uh, and then I don't know what happens after that. Maybe you just, uh, maybe you take a FedEx plane home. The film's minimal score was composed and conducted by Alan Silvestri, which won a Grammy award in 2002, contains no original musical score until Chuck escapes the island. It's just Elvis songs. FedEx provided access to their facilities in Memphis, Los Angeles, and Moscow, as well as airplanes, trucks, uniforms, and logistical support. A team of FedEx marketers oversaw production through more than two years of filming. Apparently, they were horrified initially when they heard about the plot, uh, but then embraced it and threw themselves into it. Wilson the Volleyball. That idea and character was created by the screenwriter, William Broyles Jr. So he researched the film. He decided to deliberately strand himself for one week on an isolated beach near Mexico's Sea of Cortez to force himself to search for water and food and obtain his own shelter. During this time, a volleyball washed up on shore. That became his inspiration. Uh, while he was on the island, he speared, he ate stingrays, he learned how to open a coconut, and he tried to make fire, all of which ended up in the movie. So smart idea. Hanks got a staph infection during the filming. He got a cut, became infected, almost gave him blood poisoning, and he was hospitalized for three days. It is true that Castaway was ripped off by ABC for Lost. It was Lloyd Braun's favorite show. Lloyd Braun was running ABC at the time. He also hired my friend Jimmy Kimmel, and that was the reason to move to Los Angeles. He loved the movie Castaway. He was like, what is Castaway the series? And found a writer to come up with basically that pitch. So he got a writer named Jeffrey Lieber, who wrote the pilot. Then J.J. Abrams took it over, and you know the rest. Wilson. The manufacturer of the volleyball used in the movie, other Wilsons have played an important role in Tom Hanks' life and career. He's married to Rita Wilson. His first TV role, as mentioned earlier, in Bosom Buddies, Kip Wilson. He was even in Charlie Wilson's whatever, Charlie Wilson's War, whatever that movie was. So yeah, that was weird. During his second appearance on Inside the Actor Studio, Tom Hanks was asked by James Lipton what he thought happened to Chuck after the film's ending. Hanks responded, quote, he turned around. He went back and he made babies with that lady, meaning Bettina. So I agree. I think that's what happened as well. And then um, I mentioned the the hanging thing. So he used some old robes, fashioned a dummy out of a log, and hang the log, hangs the log to see if the dead tree supports his weight. 
the branch snaps, leaving the log dummy hanging. That scene was in the movie. You're not crazy. If you saw the movie, you're like, what happened to that scene? Um, That scene did happen. And then the actress who played Bettina was named Laurie White. And she passed away in January 2018 at age 52. So that was a bummer. So that's it. That's all I have for Half-Fast Internet Research. Let's take one more break and then we'll bang out the rest of the categories. Quick reminder about the Ringer Podcast Network where we are still continuing to put out a bunch of shows. Ringer NFL, Ringer NBA, The Watch, Big Picture, Press Box, David Chang, JJ Reddick. Many more pods. We'll see who else ends up doing Ringer Dish. I don't know what's going on with that feed. I know uh, we might have some Survivor recaps potentially on the Ringer Dish feed, but just keep checking on Apple and on Spotify. And if you check out the Spotify app, good things happen because they have all kinds of little gadgets in there, including the ability to increase the speed to 1.2, 1.52, whatever you want. So check out the Ringer Podcast Network on Spotify. Apex Mountain. I didn't have a lot for this one. I think it's the apex mountain for volleyballs though. Cause you figure you had the 2000 summer Olympics. There's probably some good volleyball that year. And then, uh, and then Wilson, the volleyball volleyballs, the, the number of volleyball purchases went way up after this movie and Wilson, the volleyball becomes an iconic character. So I'm going to go volleyballs. And then Chris Noth, he's in sex in the city. I think this was when he starts cheating on his wife with Carrie Bradshaw when they got back together. But then he's also in Castaway, which is a movie that made $459 million. And he might have, I think he was done with Law and Order at this point, but this is just peak Chris Noth time. And then uh, I'm going to say Fiji. This has to be the best movie ever filmed in Fiji. Other than that, not a lot of Apex Mountain. I don't, I don't think you could go Zemeckis. I don't think you could go Hanks. It's certainly Nick Cersei's Apex Mountain. Helen Hunt is probably when she wins an Oscar with with uh, with Nicholson. Maybe the Tennessee Titans coming off the Super Bowl and then getting a castaway name drop for the next 20 years. That's all I got for that. All right, picking nits. We're going to pick some nits here. First one. Are we sure Chuck survives the plane crash? First question. Why does he lurch backwards, not forward? The plane crashes into the water. Wouldn't he go flying forward? Why does he go flying backwards? Does the water supersede? Like if you're in a car crash, you would go forward. But if you're in a plane crash, was there so much water that it made him go backwards before he went forward? I just need more explanation. If somebody if somebody has a theory on that who actually understands physics and what this experience would be like, uh, send me a compelling email about it. The mailbag at the ringer.com. That'd be my first one. The second one is I think the propeller kills him. He lands in the in the raft and whatever the propeller. I think I think it sucks, it sucks Chuck towards the propeller and then he blows up. So two slight nitpicks. Not sure he survives that plane crash in real life. Um, next one, next nitpick. Chuck's tooth removal. Good idea or bad idea? I guess my question is: Do you feel like you're going to die? Is the tooth going to decay in your head to the point that you're actually just going to die from it? Probably not. Was it so much pain that you're thinking, all right, I got to get this thing out. And if I get an infection and die, whatever. I was thinking about going to the top of the mountain and, and jumping off and hanging myself anyway. So this is my last chance. So it's it's like a half suicide move almost. But um, I think the fact that it worked, <laughs> I'm going to say that's a nitpick. 
Next one, why doesn't Chuck open the last package? He opens all these FedEx packages, leaves that last one open or unopened. I just think you're on that island for four years. I would go nuts. I I would be thinking about what's in the package all the time. Maybe this is, maybe there's a cell phone in there. Who the fuck knows? Maybe, maybe there's some sort of equipment that I could need. Maybe there's something I could use to help me get through my day-to-day life. I'm sorry. I'm opening every fucking package. I just am. So Chuck not opening the last package. I know we needed it for the narrative of the movie, but come on. Anyone's opening that package. You have to. You're there. You're there for 1,500 days. You're going to want to know what's in that package. You're going to be like, ah, I'm going to hold this one off. Especially like if you're going to kill yourself, if you're going to go up to the, to the top of the mountain, before you do that, aren't you opening the package? So he's just going to leave that package unopened. It's going to be the great unknown for him as he's hanging from a mountain. Another nitpick. I just think Chuck's incredibly sunburned after being on that raft after he escapes for a few days. And you can see it. He's got huge red splotches, but I don't know how he, how he survives that. And we, it's also unclear how many days it was. So it could have been three days. It could have been seven. It could have been 13. We don't really know, but I do know that he would have been baking in the sun for a lot of that time. And, uh, and the reason I bring this up is four weeks later, he's on a plane heading back to Tennessee. I think he's hospitalized for two, three months, minimum. He's sunburned. He's completely dehydrated. He's got all kinds of teeth shit going on. I just think he's not back. I'm going to say 10 weeks over under, and I'm going over. Next nitpick, I just think Kelly would have seen Chuck at the airport terminal. I know the husband was trying to cock block it, but... Um, Man, if that's my fiance who I thought died in a plane crash, pretty sure I'm going to see him if I'm 20 feet away from him. And then finally, um, boy, Kelly just gets back on the horse fast. So Chuck dies four years later, plus two months, or but four years later, plus a month, because we know he's a month passes before he goes back to Tennessee. So that's 49 months. He's gone. She starts dating the dentist. She marries the dentist and has a kid that's old enough to sit in one of those high chairs. So the kid had to be at least like nine, 10 months old, minimum. All right. So how long were they dating? Let's say a year. They get married. Unless it's a quickie marriage, it's her first marriage. Guessing it's his first. You know, you're going to have some people at the wedding. Not sure Chuck's friends are going. They're probably like, fuck that. I'm not going to that wedding. Jerk. But figure that's another year and then she gets pregnant right away. She couldn't have mourned Chuck for like a year. Let's say she mourned him for a year. Starts dating the dentist. She's an emotional mess. Panic marriage. Kid. It's still tight. The four years is tight. Makes me wonder, did, did, was there some chemistry with the dentist even before Chuck left? And why, was, why wasn't Chuck and Kelly married in the first place? What was going on there? They bring it up at the table. Like, it's not like Chuck was like 28. I mean, Chuck's like in his 40s. Suspicious. Not sure I like Kelly. I'm, I'm, glad, she, I'm glad she doesn't end up with Chuck. Enjoy life with the dentist. The, the guy who's sat in his, in, a, in his room as you're running in the rain to go make out with somebody. Good luck. Next category, best quote. I love tomorrow. We're going to bring you back to life. I love, I have made fire. And I love the... Uh, 
I know what I have to do now. I have to keep breathing. Tomorrow the sun will rise. Who knows what the tide will bring. And I know what I have to do now. got to keep breathing. Because tomorrow the sun will rise. Who knows what the tide could bring. That's a great Tom Hanks scene. One, one thing about that scene, it was filmed in one continuous loop for three and a half minutes. There's no edits in it. Um, I suspected that, but I still, they, they can do so much chicanery with uh, movie making. I was wondering, um, maybe there, maybe there's an edit, but there's not. So he does that for three and a half minutes straight. He only screws up really one time in the scene where he does the, he does the whole thing about, um, I really miss Kelly or whatever, whatever he says. There's one part where it's like, I probably, he probably would have done a second take. Next category. Could this be remade as a 10 episode Netflix show? The answer obviously is yes. The second answer is why the fuck hasn't this happened yet? Here's how I laid it out uh, in my column a while ago. The two-hour pilot could blow out everything that happens leading up to him getting on the plane. The second episode is the plane crash and whatever. The next eight to 10 episodes revolve around life on the island for Hanks interspersed with how everyone's lives change back home, including Helen Hunt's character falling for the dentist. Maybe you even throw in some goofy TV wrinkles like one of the pilots survived the crash with Hanks, lived with him for a couple episodes for dying of gangrene. Um, maybe there's a couple natives that Hanks had to fend off. That could be the season finale. Then the last few episodes, Hanks escapes the island and gets rescued. Maybe that's the season finale. And then he lands back in Memphis and he has to win his fiance back. I feel like that's 16 episodes. That might even be two eight-episode seasons. Let's do it. I'm greenlighting it right now. Next category, probably unanswerable questions. This is a tough one. Does Chuck have any parents or any family at all? The way this movie presents Chuck, he's an only child with dead parents. No uncle greeting him, no, no, no aunt, no brother, no kid, obviously. He's just, it's just Kelly. That's it. Kind of weird. Next unanswerable question. This was came from a Vancouver reader named Paul Parsons. I'm really jealous I didn't think of this myself. Wasn't losing Wilson the best thing that could have happened to Tom Hanks and Castaway when he loses him in the ocean? Think about it. Hanks comes back with Wilson, the volleyball, and he's not letting that volleyball out of his sight. He's introducing him at parties and trying to feed him a shrimp cocktail during the reception. Inside of three months, the guy's in a mental institution. I can't disagree. I don't know the volleyball thing. I, I do think they would have institutionalized them. Which leads me to the next unanswerable question. Did Tom Hanks actually go insane on the island? He's having long conversations with the volleyball. Can you just snap out of that once you get rescued and you're back and it's like, hey, I'm normal again. I'm gonna go see my I'm gonna go see my ex-fiance. I'm gonna hang out with uh with my buddy Chuck. Uh my buddy, whatever his name was, the 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 widow. Yeah, I'm I'm good. I'm not the guy who was talking to the volleyball for two straight years. I'm fine now. I don't know if you're fine after that. I agree. If he comes back with the volleyball, that uh, that submarines his life. And he's certainly not getting Bettina either. Next unanswerable question. Did the Martian rip off Castaway? There's some stuff online about this. It, it does seem like it's Castaway out of, out of space. 
I stand by it. I'm fine with people ripping off Castaway. We're kind of doing it right now on the rewatchables. I fully support it. Next unanswerable question. What's the plot for the sequel? I wrote about this a while ago. This is one of my bits that I'm the proudest of. Castaway 2. Wilson Lives. A thriller about Hanks going to the dark side, forcing hookers to wear volleyballs with eye holes on their head as he has sex with them, then eventually becoming a serial killer of prostitutes referred to by police as the volleyball murderer before one of his old friends from FedEx puts everything together and they chase him down. Castaway 2, Wilson Lives. You would see it. Be honest. Next unanswerable question. What's Hanks' move when he goes back to Bettina's ranch? So we're playing this out after the ending. They've already had an interaction. He's, he's told her he left the package. Now he's going back. He's like, I gotta go back. I gotta talk to this person. So I think he knocks on the door. She's like, hey, what happened? He's like, I just had to tell you something. I, can I tell you the story about the package? She invites him in. You want a glass of, you want a beer? You want a glass of wine? Yeah, sure. I'll, have a, I'll, I'll just take water. That's fine. Sits down and he, and he goes, so crazy story. And then for the next two hours, tells her the story. Wait, at what point is she just all in on this guy? Probably 45 minutes in. I think that's the move. I think the move is sit down, small talk, and then so crazy story. And then you just go into it. Um, one other answerable question. I just want to acknowledge this. There's a long essay on the internet about Wilson being Chuck's island alter ego. That uh, I thought was too big of a stretch, but it's basically once he puts his bloody handprint on Wilson, he starts figuring out how to navigate the island. Wilson becomes his, his alter ego proxy to how to conquer the island as well as his friend, all this stuff. And uh, when Wilson floats away in the ocean, the theory online was that now Chuck can go back to being Chuck instead of the superhero on the island. He, he becomes normal again. Even I, who likes to read a million things into these movies, even I don't see that one. So uh, I'm vetoing that one, but it is online if you want to check it out. Last category, who won the movie? This is about as convincing of a who won the movie answer as we've ever had. The answer is Tom Hanks. He wins the movie. He wins the nine-year stretch that is absolutely incredible and becomes one of the great actors we've ever had. So this seems like a good time to mention. Tom Hanks announced last week that he had the coronavirus along with his wife and their quarantine, all that stuff. Between that, it was the same night that we found out about Rudy Gobert. That was the night that it seems like all hell was breaking loose. And of all the celebrities, I think, to get the coronavirus, that was probably the most shocking one. And the guy that, you know, I feel like belongs to the most people in a lot of ways because all the movies he's been in, like everybody loves Tom Hanks. So that was uh, about as sobering of a moment as you could have had with this thing. It's like Tom Hanks can get it. Anyone can get it because he's the everyman. He's Tom Hanks. I hope he feels better. I hope he gets through this. If by any chance he's listening, feel well, get better. Everyone else out there, stay safe. The rewatchables is not going to go away. If anything, it's going to gain steam. We'll be doing two of these a week. Although going forward, I'll have at least one co-host with me because this is pretty weird. I did enjoy it, but I think this is the only time we'll ever do this gimmick for a movie that was Castaway. That was the rewatchables. 
It was presented by State Farm. Don't forget to check out TheRinger.com and The Ringer Podcast Network. We'll be back early next week, probably with another rewatchables. Until next week.